From the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery, I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. On today's podcast, infectious uveitis. Perhaps a lot of these cases of what we used to call non-infectious uveitis, undifferentiated uveitis, might actually be driven by a latent virus. First this. Want to learn about MACRA, MIPS, and running an excellent and efficient ophthalmology practice? You'll love iTalks Radio, the official podcast of the American Society of Ophthalmic Administrators. Let's get right down to the basics of MACRA. For those of you who are not familiar with this law, what is MACRA? MACRA does stand for the Medicare Access and CHIP Reauthorization Act. iTalks Radio brings to ASCRS members, ASOA members, and even non-members practical information on human resources, government regulatory compliance, middle management, and productivity. Indulge at italksradio.org. That's E-Y-E-T-A-L-K-S radio.org. Italks Radio, the yang to my yin. Like most comprehensive ophthalmologists, I manage patients with anterior uveitis and, if clinically warranted, perform laboratory workup to determine an etiology. I've always done this in the assumption that the majority of uveitis are idiopathic and that only a small number are infectious. I now know that infectious etiologies are far more common after my conversation with John Forrester. I also learned that I know a great deal less about uveitis than I thought I did. My conversation was revealing for me and I hope that you will find it the same. As a clinician, I view uveitis in an admittedly simplistic manner. The majority of cases are clinically idiopathic, and I assume these to be autoimmune without systemic involvement. The next largest group I assume to be autoimmune with an identifiable systemic collagen vascular association, and the smallest group I assume to be infectious and primarily related to herpes virus. I gather these ideas are about as current as spontaneous generation. Before we talk about infectious etiologies, can I get you to explain the mechanism by which non-infectious autoimmune etiologies cause uveitis? Uh, The way that non-infectious, you're assuming that the non-infectious etiologies are actually autoimmune. Uh, the, the problem with that assumption is that autoimmune disease requires certain criteria to be met before they can be definitively described as such. Um, one of those is that they require um, an experimental model. And in the case of posterior uveitis, uh, we do have that. Um, in that um, several retinal antigens have been identified as autoantigens on the basis that when inoculated into animals with complete Freund's adjuvant, they will induce a posterior uveitis. Um, In addition to the experimental model, however, there needs to be clinical evidence. And clinical evidence is based on two things. First of all, it normally requires um, both or either autoantibodies to a recognized autoantigen and two 
um, T cells uh, are cellular immune responses to an autoantigen. And the last thing that's required is that there really needs to be identification of pathogenicity, that these autoantibodies or cells actually cause pathology in the human. These last criteria, autoantibodies, cells, and pathogenicity by either of these two um, entities has just not been found. And in fact, autoantibodies to retinal antigens are well recognized as features of our normal um, immunoglobulin components. And we also have cellular responses. Normal healthy people show cellular responses to the known retinal autoantigens. So the evidence for autoimmunity is really slim. The last um, possible uh, recognized way of identifying autoimmunity in humans is a strong association with MHC, particularly MHC class 2, but also MHC class 1. In this case, there are a few entities which could fit that bill. One of them is birdshot retinochoroidopathy, which has a very strong association with HLA A29. And there is some evidence that cells in the vitreous um, and um, cells in the systemic circulation show autoimmunity in this model, particularly to retinal antigens. Um, another one is Votkoyanagaharada disease, which is, of course, um, a disease uh, in the Asian populations. And here, melanin-associated antigens, such as the tyrosinase-related protein, might uh, fit the bill as potential autoantigens. They have a, an association with HLA, um, DR4.5, um, the problem with this is that the link is not nearly so strong as it is with birdshot. Um, but the last entity that might be that might fit the bill also has HLA DR4 and 5, and that is sympathetic ophthalmia. Now, sympathetic ophthalmia is regarded as the classical autoimmune uveity entity, partly because, as we all know, sensitization to um, ocular antigens after an initial injury is followed usually within three to six months with uveitis in the fellow eye um, and that is regarded as evidence of pathogenicity of um, cellular components initially um, activated by the original injury. So um, these are three quite clear-cut entities in which a story could be made for autoimmunity, um, but for the bulk of uveitic entities, and there are many, as you know, um, the real evidence for autoimmunity hasn't really been found. What role does breakdown of the blood-retinal barrier play in the pathogenesis of uveitis? We, we regard um, breakdown of the blood-retinal barrier as really um, almost essential in cases of, or it, it really is um, a, an entity or a, an event that, that has to occur in forms of posterior uveitis. However, 
as you know, most forms of uveitis are anterior, or a majority are, not most, but, um, well, <laughs> let me rephrase that. A majority are, um, it's more common to have anterior uveitis than it is to have posterior uveitis. But in anterior uveitis, that can occur without breakdown of the blood retinal or, and or blood brain barrier. So um, anterior uveitis, um, the recognized uh, protection of the blood retina, stroke, blood brain barrier, or the blood CNS barrier, you might say, um, doesn't really apply in terms of anterior uveitis. So all those forms of anterior uveitis, for instance, associated with joint disease or um, recognized infections or um, even um, post-operative uveitis um, needn't necessarily involve breakdown of the blood retinal barrier um, and might actually just be similar to any inflammatory process that occurs in any tissue that's invaded by infectious or non-infectious um, pathology. I'm going to display my ignorance here, and I, I fear this is not the last time that I'm going to do this in the context of our conversation. My understanding is is that a prerequisite for, let's say, posterior uveitis is that an antigen that had not been accessible, had been sort of on the far side of the blood retinal barrier, crosses over the, the blood retinal barrier and is exposed um, to the immune system, which recognizes it and uh, uh, as, as a foreign antigen and generates a, a localized autoimmune response. Am, am I just completely off base with this understanding of the etiology? Well, um, in fact, what you're suggesting is that the the concept that autoantigens are sequestered behind the blood retinal barrier and are not seen by the immune system, um, you're suggesting that that forms the current concept of how posterior uveitis occurs, yeah? Yes. Um, i just completely wrong with this. So, well, yeah, um, there is certainly um, new concepts with regard to tolerance. Um, the question of whether or not those autoantigens are in fact sequestered behind the blood retinal barrier has been um, really challenged uh, by showing that normal antigens in any tissue, including the brain and the retina, um, normally track and uh, out of the retina as part of physiology, as normal homeostasis. These antigens are then um, detected in the peripheral lymphoid system um, where they are recognized by autoreactive T-cells. John, my understanding was that the blood retina barrier was important in sequestering antigens that could elicit an autoimmune response. Is, is, is this true? My answer um, to that is that these antigens are not sequestered behind the barrier. They are normally seen by healthy individuals in the peripheral lymphoid tissue. The response of healthy individuals is not to activate the T-cells, but to tolerize the T-cells. And in order to do that, they need other cells in the immune system called regulatory cells, which keep the autoreactive, the potentially autoreactive cells 
um, they keep them quiet and at bay. So that's normal immunological tolerance um, that occurs in, in, in all of us. So all the antigens that are present in the brain and the retina, in the heart, in the lung, in the kidneys, are constantly being seen by the immune system and the immune system is being told, don't react to these guys. Um, and that is called immunological tolerance. And when that is broken, that's when a potential autoimmune reaction occurs. Now, what breaks that tolerance is the big question. Um, and it, it, it has been suggested that infections break the tolerance. So when you get an infection, that switches on the whole immunological system in the body and the potential autoreactive T cells get swept up in that whole process, sometimes by what's called a bystander response, and so you get auto-reaction. Meanwhile, the infection passes off and is cleared, and you're left with these auto-reactive cells, which might cause the problem. However, I still think that, that it, there isn't a lot of strong evidence for that to occur, and that more likely the potential is that the infection is not properly cleared, and you get persistent latent infection that keeps driving the immune response. John, what is the autoimmune regulatory gene? The autoimmune regulatory gene is a, a gene in the thymus. Um, uh, it was originally discovered in the thymus. It's also been found in the peripheral lymph nodes. This air gene, as it's known, um, is um, a gene that's present in certain cells uh, called medullary epithelial um, thymic epithelial cells, MTEX, um, and this uh, regulates the, um, exp the activation of T cells in the thymus, autoreactive T cells in the thymus, to potential autoantigens. Now, as I mentioned, retinal antigens, of course, are in the retina, but they're also expressed in the thymus. So this autoimmune regulatory gene, this air gene, um, regulates the expression or the induction, I should say, of uh, autoreactive T cells in the thymus. So it deletes them, it promotes the deletion of those autoreactive cells. However, its effect is not complete, and so some of these cells still escape into the peripheral circulation. And that's what I was mentioning with regard to some patient, um, some normal healthy individuals, I should say, showing evidence of autoreactivity to retinal antigens. Really, really, really interesting stuff. John, what is the distinction between autoimmune and autoinflammatory disease? Is it that autoinflammatory disease is idiopathic inflammation that's not associated with an autoantigen? Well, um, it's a little simpler than that, even. Um, you, you may have heard of a chap called Mechnikov, who's a Russian immunologist at the turn of the century, of the turn of the 19th and 20th century. He discovered macrophages. Um, and the basis of autoinflammatory versus autoimmunity is really the distinction between macrophages and T cells, between the innate immune response and the adaptive immune response. So 
the autoinflammation is where the innate immune response is automatically switched on. That is macrophages and monocytes, other cells like the dendritic cells that present antigen. So these cells um, become activated um, and in a you might almost say in a spontaneous way, but mostly as a result of infections. And they release a lot of um, mediators, inflammatory mediators, such as cytokines, TNF, and other well-known um, mediators of inflammation. The first auto-inflammatory disease that was ever discovered is a disease called TRAPS, uh, which is a TNF receptor-associated protein syndrome <laughs> traps um, and it was shown that these these um, these patients have recurrent um, fever lapses they have ulceration in their skin they have inflammatory bowel disease and so forth and they also may have um, inflam inflammation around the eye it was shown to be due to a defect or a mutation in the TNF receptor 1 um, and is due to protein misfolding in that disease. Um, several other uh, syndromes have been identified. And on the basis of these syndromes, the mechanism of how innate immune cells, such as macrophages, become activated was identified. And that's mostly through a system known as the inflammasome. And the inflammasome essentially involves the induction of a cytokine called IL-1. So basically what's happening is, it, imagine you're getting a, an infection with a streptococcus or a staphylococcus. The immediate response to that is neutrophils and macrophages and monocytes. And that is your innate immune system being switched on. There's no T cells involved at that point. There's no autoimmune or there's no antigen specific adaptive T cell response. It's all simple straightforward inflammation and that is what's called autoinflammatory disease and it's been shown that uveitis as you can see in um, table one of the perspective there's several of those syndromes that are listed on the left hand side of the table actually are associated with uveitis and it's predominantly anterior uveitis the blood retinal barrier is not usually broken down in these cases. And so this shows that a simple inflammatory process involving macrophages and neutrophils can induce anterior uveitis um, simply as part of an inflammatory process. So that's the distinction between autoimmunity and autoinflammatory. Autoimmunity requires antigen specificity Autoinflammatory does not. John, you alluded to the role that um, infection can can play in the in the etiology of uveitis. Now there are there are yeah. there are a, a number of conceivable ways in which uveitis may have an infectious uh, association. There may be a a, yeah. a a a viable pathogen in in the eye, there may be an inflammatory response to extant antigen, and there may be a genuine autoimmune response to microbial antigen that's remote to the eye. 
Or, or, or there may be an inflammatory response to a microbial adjuvant. Which, yeah. which of these is important clinically? Imagine the patient who's coming into your clinic and the patient has um, a chorioretinitis um, and you're wanting to investigate this patient. Um, so this, this patient has got multivocal lesions in the, in the fundus of the eye and you run through your normal tests you show perhaps that there's some autoreactivity to S antigen or to IRBP, um, but you also show that the patient has a quantiferin-positive test, um, but you're not quite sure whether the patient has genuine TB, the the chest X-ray is normal, and everything else um, is pretty well negative. You you really haven't found anything that's um, a definitive answer. Um, the likely possibility in a patient like that, partly because the quantiferin test is positive, is that that patient has latent tuberculosis. So that patient has um, is probably harboring um, the tubercle bacillus somewhere in its um, what used to be called the reticular endothelial system or within its macrophages. This might be in its bone marrow, this might be in lung macrophages, and it may also be within macrophages within the eye itself. Um, The initial infection with the tuberculosis has led to the mycobacteria evading the immune system, infecting macrophages which uh, and including pr- um, the progenitor cells in the bone marrow which are constantly um, produced and so they um, seed the tissues and they might seed for instance the muscle tissue the heart tissue and they might go to the kidneys or to the eye or the brain when they seed the tissues like that they remain latent in the tissues unless due to changes in the immunological controls that might occur in that patient, they become reactivated. In the eye, they would produce um, a multifocal choroiditis, such as the patient that I'm talking about has presented to you in the clinic. So that patient now is having reactivation of latent tuberculosis, which they contracted years previously and is now appearing partly because their immune system is not functioning as well as it should. So what I'm saying is that that patient now has um, evidence of an infectious etiology. The question that you've got to ask yourself, is this due to an actual infectious agent just now? Is there a cytolytic response due to the mycobacteria? And is there destruction of ocular tissue? Or is it simply that the immune response has now wakened up to the fact that there's an organism um, within the eye and it needs to clear it. And as uh, as a result, it's um, engaging in an overreactive immune response, which produces also inflammation in the eye. So such a patient probably, even if you do reach the diagnosis that this patient has tuberculosis, probably needs control with both anti-tubercular drug treatment plus um, anti-inflammatory treatment. 
Um, in my own clinical experience, um, and I've treated many of these patients, we find that such patients require um, not only the, uh, the um, triple therapy for anti-tuberculous therapy, but they also require pretty high doses of systemic steroids to control the destructive inflammation that will cause damage to the tissues. My notion that infectious agents play a small role in the etiology of uveitis is obviously pretty wide of the of the mark. How often do you feel that a microbial agent plays a key role in the development and the pathogenesis of a particular uveitis? Okay, so um, in my in my clinical experience and in the experience of many many others um, who who work in the field of uveitis, we we find that there are around about forty to fifty percent of cases you can clearly find uh, an infectious etiology, such as um, CMV, tuberculosis, toxoplasma, toxocara, etc. Um, you can identify this almost on the clinical exam, but you, you also uh, might find laboratory proof that that is the case, uh, either by PCR or by antibodies and so forth. The bulk of the cases, you can't find anything. Um, there's no infectious etiology identified, but um, such patients may, in fact, probably do have some infectious agent lying latent or dormant within their tissues. Um, and the reason I'm saying this is partly because of the story that I, des I described with the tuberculosis. It's now being found in the what we call the developing countries that many of those cases, um, and I've recently been reviewing papers um, on um, studies in Indonesia and um, other um, other parts of Asia and India, where they're finding that quite significant numbers of patients actually show evidence of um, a tuberculous etiology that is driving their chronic uveitis. Um, it's interesting that uh, tuberculosis is one of those, but many of the other cases, to come back to the other cases that are not tuberculous, um, it may well be that other organisms are causing the disease. And for instance, viruses, many of the, the diseases we see in the developing countries are caused by viruses such as dengue, chikungunya, um, and um, many of those other um, well-recognized viruses, West Nile virus and so forth. Um, these are much more difficult to find in the West. Even in my practice in Scotland, we would be very surprised to find any of these um, actually as a cause or, or an, a potential etiology in our cases of uveitis. However, um, I think what has wakened us up to this whole idea that viruses might cause or might, latent virus in particular, might be an etiology behind um, many forms of recurrent anterior uveitis, recurrent chronic uveitis, um, is the story with Ebola um, and Zika and now more recently with, um, or in the last 10 years with um, Diseases such as CMV, um, anterior uveitis, the Posner-Schlossman syndrome, which are now being identified as being caused by latent viruses. 
Um, in the case of Ebola, this is one that's extremely interesting, as you are probably well aware, but um, many cases of Ebola lead to the death of the individual. It's a severely infectious, lethal disease. However, um, in those that survive, something like 20 to 40% of them, and I'm talking about the population in Africa, um, get recurrent anterior uveitis. And in some of these cases, Ebola virus has been identified in the anterior chamber. Now, a similar situation occurs with um, CMV. It's now been recognized that many cases of um, anterior, especially chronic recurrent anterior uveitis, um, might be due to viruses such as CMV or even herpes simplex or herpes zoster without a strong history or even much evidence of vesicles. But mostly CMV is the one that's um, really interesting. Now, the reason I say this is because um, we have been working um, on experimental models of CMV. And we've, um, using mice that have been infected with um, CMV systemically, not in the eye, but systemically infection with CMV. Um, we have for, we have shown that um, these mice develop chronic recurrent granulomatous anterior uveitis involving the iris and the choroid and the ciliary body. Um, the retina is not directly involved. Um, the disease passes over a period of about 10 days, and after that point, you can't find virus in the eye at all. However, over many weeks to months, even up to 250 days in a mouse, which is an aged mouse, as you know, um, there still is evidence of chronic recurrent granulomatous uveitis in the absence of detectable virus within um, the, it, by um, sampling the tissue. However, what we have done is um, take explants of the iris from these mice culture them in vitro, and we've been able to recover latent virus in vitro in the dish, showing that these mice have been harboring the virus all this time, although we've not been able to identify it. So this actually is, is a good model example of how chronic recurrent latent organisms can persist in a tissue such as the eye and the brain or the kidneys or elsewhere um, and cause chronic recurrent inflammation without necessarily um, being able to detect the virus itself by our current technologies. This is, this is one of the reasons why we're beginning to get the feeling that perhaps a lot of these cases of what we used to call non-infectious uveitis, um, undifferentiated uveitis, um, might actually be driven by a latent virus, um, a latent infectious agent. It needn't necessarily be virus. It can be a mycobacteria that I've mentioned. It could even be fungi, latent fungi. Um, there's some low-level evidence that fungi can do the same um, and even cause chronic degenerative disease in the long term. So um, that's... This really is basically forming the basis. The interesting thing is that with our current technologies, we can't detect these organisms. 
but we know the patient has a history of having had this infection or not. I mean, if you think about it, a third of the world's population have been infected by TB. A third of the world's population have been infected by toxoplasma. Um, many of these, if you think of um, um, nematodes and all of those infectious agents in the developing countries, huge numbers of the population are involved. So what's going on in the West is I think we're seeing a much more attenuated um, infectious etiology compared to the developing countries. As such, we've not been able to detect the organism, but um, my hunch is that it's almost certain that this is what's driving it. And it drives it through this, you might say auto-inflammatory, or it drives it through um, inflammation, and that is the inflammasome. And that's why sometimes it might appear as an auto-inflammatory disease. This is really, really neat stuff, John, but let, let me ask you something very practical. How should this information guide therapy? It, in the end, as, as, a, as a clinician, does it really matter to, to me whether the etiology is an immune response to a residual microbial antigen or to a microbial adjuvant or, or whether it's a truly non-infectious tissue-specific autoimmune disease? Yeah, I, I think what you're saying, I think that's a great question. and It's probably the most important pertinent question to the management of our cases. Um, so basically, as I've said, the, the patient will present to you with an inflammation. You don't find an obvious infectious etiology, um, but the patient still has destructive inflammatory disease. They're, uh, they're getting saniki, they're getting raised intraocular pressure, they're getting involvement of their lens, their vitreous is full of debris, they might even be developing some macular edema or some swelling of the optic nerve. What do you do? You've gone through your um, tests, you've not found an infectious etiology. Um, you're still suspicious, um, and so you keep it at the back of your mind, but you have to control the disease, and so you control it with your anti-inflammatories. And what I normally do is shut that down as quickly as possible with whatever agent I've got to hand. And the best one of those, is, and the long-standing one of those, is steroids, of course. But you can't keep them going long-term. So I normally give them, depending on the, on the level of sight-threatening uh, disease, if it's really severely sight-threatening, we would even consider using intravenous methylprednisolone. If there's no actual site threat, then we control the inflammation itself, perhaps just with topical therapy or with low-dose oral steroids. Um, but again, you can't keep those going long-term. And if the disease persists or recurs, then you have to think of alternatives. And again, you think of um, immunosuppressive agents. But meanwhile, I'm constantly going back to the thought this patient might have an infectious etiology, and I'm checking them over again. I'm looking for changes in their virus, in, in their virology, and I'm, I'm retesting their urine. Um, I'm doing all of those things. At the end of the day, um, for instance, in a classical case of intermediate uveitis that might be associated with multiple sclerosis, you may never find an etiology, and your responsibility is basically to control that inflammation and prevent loss of 
side. And you do that as best you can with your combination of low-dose steroid immunosuppressants and you taper them all the time, constantly tapering them off all the time to get to the lowest minimal effective dose of any of those. Meanwhile, still thinking that there's an infectious etiology. John, I want to thank you very much for, for bringing this this, this important clinically relevant stuff to us and for the tremendous generosity uh, of of your time with us today. No problem. It's my pleasure. John Forrester is Emeritus Professor of Ophthalmology at the University of Aberdeen in Aberdeen, Scotland, United Kingdom. His paper, Autoimmunity, Autoinflammation, and Infection in Uveitis, appears in the May 2018 issue of the American Journal of Ophthalmology. Ask questions of Dr. Forrester or any of our previous guests, or make a comment about any of the topics we've discussed. These interviews are meant to be the start of a conversation in which you participate. Write to me with your questions or comments at josh at iWorld.org. As seen from here is a production of the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery. Be a part of the next podcast. I'm Josh Young.